Our scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 15, and I'd like for us to read verses 11 through 31. Luke 15, 11 through 31. And having found that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are here because you are great. We know that the only reason we wanted to be here today is because you changed our lives and gave us an affection for you and you opened our eyes and now we can see you. Father, we want to bring you glory, not ourselves. We want to know you and we want to find the joy of being with you this morning, Father. Father, I pray that you'd guard our thoughts, that we would be concentrating on you, not on the busyness of our lives, but on you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Familiar story. Let's read it together. Luke 15, 1. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me a share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen to a citizen of that that country who sent him to feed the pigs into the field to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a sense, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, replied. he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has come back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You've all heard this parable before, I'm guessing. 
And so you're probably thinking, well, been there, done that, what's, what's new? Well, I'd like to do something a little different uh, with this parable, uh, although I will acknowledge that it appears that the reason Jesus gave this parable was really directed at the Pharisees to show them that they were the older son. This parable is in contrast, somewhat contrast to two that preceded in Luke, the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin. In both those cases, there's great joy when either the sheep or the, or the coin is found. And they both end with the phrase that there, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels of God over a sinner who repents. And so we're certainly seeing the theme that there's great joy in heaven over God's plan of salvation. But then in this parable, uh, some of those same elements are there, but there's this older son that, that, that gives it a very different slant to the story. And as I said, it appears that Jesus told the story really for the benefit of the Pharisees. But I'd like to do something a little different with it. Uh, I've been thinking about joy lately, and I'll, I'll give you some insights into why as I go on. But there's certainly great joy in this parable. We see this in the Father. Uh, he is overjoyed that the Son has come back. And there's a feast because of this. And that's contrasted to the lack of joy in the older Son. And so there's two elements of joy there. Now, first of all, talking about the Father's joy, the Father's joy in this parable is very much like our Heavenly Father's joy in in his saving of us. And I'd like us to turn, first of all, to Hebrews 12.2. In Hebrews 12.2, we read, we're instructed to let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, this verse just continues to amaze me. I mean, the first part is an instruction, and since I'm an engineering-type person, I get instructions. And engineers are very good with instructions, by the way. We take instructions well, or at least we like things laid out, let's put it that way. I don't take instructions so well when my wife gives me instructions, but, <clears throat> you know... When you get something that says, you know, in, you know, some assembly required, I like that, as long as the instructions are laid out. So the first, first part of this verse is fine for me. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. That's an instruction. But the second part of the verse amazes me. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross? I will never get over my wonder of that verse. <clears throat> the almighty God who could do anything he wanted, made this universe knowing that he would die at the hands of his own creation to show his glory. And why does he do this? For the joy set before him. There's great joy in that. And that astounds me. Well, we see that joy echoed in this parable. And we also realize that once God saves us, that as a part of his family, we are also to have, to share in that joy. And we see an element of that in 3 John. 3 John 1.4, if you want to read with me, uh, go to Revelation, take about three pages back. The books back there are short. 
Jude's about one page, and First John's about a page and page and a quarter. Third John one four. John is speaking to uh, when he's talk, talking to, uh, to his dear friend Galus, but he's also he also realizes his letter is being read by by others. And he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. This is a different kind of joy than we're used to. Uh, we tend to associate the word joy with an ecstatic feeling, um, something that brings us physical pleasure, emotional pleasure. But this is an interesting, this is a quiet joy here. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, and of course John knows that they're really Christ's children, are walking in the, in, in the truth. <clears throat> John is echoing the joy of his heavenly father here. God tells us that it's for the joy set before him that he did this. He did this to show his glory, and he also did it so that his joy could be ours. And John is echoing that here when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the faith. Well, before I get to the parable, let's just ask the question, what is joy? I had a student in one of my classes this semester. I teach engineers. Engineers aren't usually into words. Engineers are usually more into doing things. But I had a very interesting student this semester that I enjoyed a lot. He was also into words. Words were very, very important to him, and I appreciated that because I think words are important too. I'm just not so good at using them. And he got me into a website, dictionary.com. Didn't know it was there. And it just, it just seemed like every week I would mention a word and he'd raise his hand, well, dictionary.com says this or that, or, or we would go look it up together. <clears throat> and it was a lot of fun. So rather than going to the book on the shelf, I thought, well, gee, let's just go to dictionary.com this time and see what it says about joy. And I found two interesting definitions here that I think will be helpful to us. First one is, is probably the one that we would have thought of first. It says it's an intense and especially ecstatic or exultant happiness. <clears throat> we know that one. It's the giddiness. I, I don't do that so much, but um, <laughs> we, we know that. We know that definition. Uh, but the second one starts to give us some insight that maybe we wouldn't have thought of this at first. It says a source, it's a source or an object of pleasure or satisfaction. As in, their only child, their pride and joy. I mean, we have heard that expression, their pride and joy. <clears throat> so we're, we're getting some insight here that joy is, is certainly associated with happiness, although we know that happiness tends to be more trivial and joy somehow is deeper. But we're also starting to see here an element that joy is an object of pleasure. All right, well, that's what dictionary.com says. Let's see what scripture says. Not that scripture is a dictionary, but certainly a good way of understanding what scripture is saying is to look at what scripture is saying. So something I can encourage you to do uh, anytime you're pondering over, well, what does this mean? Go to the concordance. The concordance is just this simple thing that tells you <clears throat> all the passages in Scripture that has a particular word in it. And so let's do that with joy. And I'm going to pick out a few that I think give us some insight into what the Scripture means when it's talking about joy. So let's start with Psalm in the Psalms. We're going to run from left to right in the Bible. Psalm 1611. So start in the middle of the Bible.
I won't chide you the way Bill does. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Well, some of the words we see there are things we might have expected, you know, in our, at least our earthly definition of joy. He does mention eternal pleasures. And we, we tend to think of pleasures as things that bring, make, make us happy. <clears throat> but David says something even more insightful here, though. He says, you will fill me with joy in your presence. So we're starting to get a flavor here that joy isn't just things. It is being in someone's presence. Okay, let's come to the New Testament. Uh, let's go to John 15, 11. Here Jesus is speaking. John 15, 11, he says, I have told you this. We don't have time for this, but I have told you this so that your joy, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. We all want joy, but here Jesus is saying that what's going to be happening here is it's his joy that's going to be given to us, not us manufacturing joy. Let's go on to Romans. So turn right a little bit. Romans 14, 7. Here Paul tells us. fourteen seventeen. I'm sorry. Paul tells us, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. There's a great tendency of stopping reading there at the joy part, because we like that, you know. We like to be happy. <clears throat> but this verse says that there's joy in the Holy Spirit. Now, we've already read Hebrews 12, 2, where it said that for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. And so that's certainly another aspect of joy that amazes us. And there's one last one. Let's take a look at James. James 1, 2. James 1, 2 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Here he even uses the word pure joy. Well, let's get back to the parable. Where am I going with this? Certainly we saw the Father's joy indicated in, our Heavenly Father's joy in the Father in the story. But what about the sons? Let's start with the first son. Uh, the first son says, you know, I'm living in this great place, but I want out of here. I want the things that my father can give me, <clears throat> but I don't want to be around my father at all. As a matter of fact, I want to use the, the, uh, the resources of my father to buy things that my father wouldn't even want for me. So he goes off, <clears throat> takes his father's inheritance, squanders it, and of course it falls apart. Uh, he certainly discovers that it brought no joy whatsoever. 
This reminds me of C.S. Lewis. I've been reading a lot of C.S. Lewis lately. And C.S. Lewis, for those of you who don't know him, uh, he wasn't a theologian, uh, but he was a, actually a professor at Oxford in, I think, ancient literatures or something like that. But what's interesting to us is that he had been a, a naturalist and an atheist throughout his teen years and, and his 20s, very definitely trying to run away from any god. In fact, as a matter of fact, he says that although he realized that being an atheist brought him no hope, it did give him one thing. It left him alone in his mind so that he could pursue what he wanted to pursue because he had this idea that he could pursue joy as if it was a thing to be had internally. And then the great joy of his life is that God knocked him off his horse in his late 20s. And as he looked back, he realized that what he had been searching for his whole life was joy. And surprise, surprise, he found out that joy is a person. In particular, that person is God, and joy is knowing him and pursuing him. One of his books is called Surprised by Joy. How about that? And in it, he says something interesting about joy. He says, only when our whole attention are, are fixed on something else does a joy arise. Joy is a byproduct. Its very existence presupposes that you desire not it, but something outer and other. If joy could be produced from within, it would at once be to, see, to be seen of no value. For take away the object, and what, after all, would be left? A whirl of images, a fluttering sensation in the diaphragm, a momentary abstraction, and who could want that? <clears throat> he had spent his whole life trying to manufacture joy. He had started out as a young person he was a very fantasyful guy. You know, he's the one who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, he loved fantasy, and so he was very easily drawn up into it. And he had, <clears throat> as a young person, got, got into reading about the Norse gods. I really don't know what all that's about, except a little bit from opera. But he loved that. He pursued that as a teenager. But he also found, as time went on, that faded. And he kept trying to bring back the feeling kind of thing. And then he started searching in other places in his life, and he kept searching for joy internally. And what he's saying here is he discovered that joy apart from, when our, when our whole attention and desire are fixed on something else, does, does joy arise. He realized it has to be from outside, not inside. Maybe he was thinking of the words of Augustine, who was an early Christian in the 400s. He was the Bishop of Hippo in North Africa. And actually, his life bore a fair amount of similarity to Lewis's. He also, throughout his 20s, was running from God. Uh, in the case of Augustine, he, he, by his own admission, he, he lived a, a very sexually immoral life. And God drew him to him. And he says, Suppose, brethren, a man should make a ring for his betrothed, and she should love the ring more wholeheartedly than the betrothed who made it for her. Certainly let her love his gift, but if she should say, the ring is enough, I do not want to see his face again, what would we say of her? The pledge, is given, her by the, the pledge given her by the betrothed is just that. In his pledge, he himself may be loved. God then has given you all these things. Love him who made them. That's what Augustine discovered. <clears throat> so unlike the 
younger son who decided that joy is outside. Joy is things and joy is being apart from my father. Both Lewis and Augustine discovered that joy is a relationship. Joy is pursuing something that is good and wonderful. That's where the thrill is. What about the older son? You know, at first, you know, the older son looks like a pretty good guy. He's just the reliable guy. He's just tilling the fields, doesn't seem to make any trouble. But the litmus test here is what happens when the lost are found. And as I said before, the story really appears to be centered on this older son. The older son had no joy. The older son had no joy in the endeavors of his father. The older son, as a matter of fact, seemed to resent his father. He said, you know, I've been tilling for you all this time. I'm working, 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 and what's in it for me? And that reminds me a lot of another parable of Jesus, often called the parable of the talents. And the story there is, a great master is going to go on a trip, and so he calls in three of his servants, and he says, well, I'm going away. I want you to take care of my possessions. And so he gives each one of them some percentage of his estate and asks them to take care of it. And two of the three joyfully invest the money and actually come up with a return. But one of them says in his heart, you know, I've never really liked this guy. I don't like what he does. He's a harsh master. <clears throat> so he says, I'm just going to bury it under my mattress and so at least he can't get mad at me for losing his money. And then when the master comes back, uh, he's very angry with the what he calls the wicked servant. But what I've always enjoyed about, particularly enjoyed about that parable, is the words he use, uses to the other two servants. After he praises them for what they've done, he's told them both, enter into the joy of your Lord. Those two servants <clears throat> knew what it was to be a a part of their Lord's enterprise. That's why they joyfully did what they did. But this older son didn't do that. The older son resented this, this master and was just kind of there to survive. And I think within this older son, I see two traps for us to fall into, two wrong ways of thinking about who our Heavenly Father is and what it means to have joy in Him. The first is, the first trap is thinking that we that we have to earn our righteousness, or that we even can earn our righteousness. We can't. And trying to earn it would cause bitterness, of course. Second, I see another trap is maybe the older son was using his father for what he really wanted. Using God to get what we want. Say, oh, I'll be obedient. I'll do all these things, but you owe it to me. You owe me certain things. And I know just what they are. I think those are two traps that we need to guard ourselves against. Now, uh, let's go back to some words of people who speak better than me. Uh, C.S. Lewis again. He wrote a very interesting book called The Great Divorce. And how these guys dream these up, I don't know. But in The Great Divorce, he's, what he's really trying to identify, well, The Great Divorce is about heaven and hell and there's a bus line that, reads, that leads from hell to heaven. And in this story, anyone in hell who wants to get on this bus to visit heaven can, and they can stay if they wish. But the way Lewis designed the story is that every one of them stays for a while, but then they get back in the bus and they go back. And his point was <clears throat> that 
they don't want God, they just want things. And as they get to heaven and discover that the joy of heaven is being with this great God, one by one, they get back on the bus and say, I don't want it. So by no means is he trying to say that there is a bus line between heaven and hell. Um, he's, he's, he's not trying to build theology. He's trying to show us something about ourselves. And one of the greatest stories within that is a woman who's on the bus, and she's, she took the bus because what she really wanted was her son who have evidently died in infancy, and she figured was in heaven. And when she gets there, she's met by her brother, who was in heaven. And this, this, in this dialogue between them, she starts by saying, when can I see my son? And her brother, Reginald, says, when you learn to want someone else besides your son. But the sister says, oh, you mean religion and all that kind of thing. I'll do whatever's necessary. Um... Just tell me what to do. Come on. The sooner I begin it, the sooner they'll let me have my boy. I'm quite ready. But the brother says, but Pam, do think. Don't you see that you are not beginning at all as long as you are in that state of mind? You're treating God only as a means to your son, Michael. The sister's Pam says, you wouldn't talk like that if you were a mother. Brother says, you mean if I were only a mother. But there is no such thing as being only a mother. You exist as Michael's mother only because you first exist as God's creature. No, listen, Pam. He, God, loves you. God has also suffered. God has also waited a long time. And the story goes on. <clears throat> I shudder to see myself in that. And I know I have. She didn't want this God. She wanted a thing. And she had said, my joy will be this thing. I will not worship this God. Once again, maybe C.S. Lewis was thinking about somebody much older than him, Augustine. And Augustine, when he was writing about his own conversion, and he's talking in first person as if he's talking to God, says, how sweet, all of it, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them through, from me, you who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and took their place. O oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, my salvation. Augustine got it. He understood that <clears throat> the joy that God was talking about was not a set of things. It was not a feeling. It was enjoying God himself, this great God. Well, now I want to get practical. In a sense, I'm probably telling you things that you already know. I've known these things. And it, it seems so easy. I mean, I think most of us would say we believe these things are, to be tr are true. We know verses like Matthew 6.33 that says, Seek ye first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And it seems so easy. But, you know, it's not always easy for me. Maybe I'm just different. Uh, I think the genesis for my talk today came from, well, first of all, I have been reading in Lewis and, and Augustine for a while, but I was really floored a couple months ago. I just had a bad day at work, just had a couple of failings there that just really made me look like a, you know, just a complete, you know, complete failure. I know I'm not. At least things are never as bad as they seem, but they seemed that, seemed that way that day. And I just thought, you know, I don't know what I'm doing they're going to fire me. They're, you know, you know, 
I wouldn't hire me if I was hiring that kind of thing. And I, and I'm, I'm laughing now, but it, it wasn't funny that day. It wasn't funny. I was really demoralized. And as I got home, a movie line kept running through my mind. <clears throat> Bill mentioned uh, It's a Wonderful Life a few we weeks ago. It, it is a great movie. But the one that was running through my mind was when George Bailey um, comes home after being told that he's in trouble. It's Christmas Eve. Uh, Brother Billy has just lost $8,000. Um, and his life is crashing in. And his wife says, how was your day, dear? And he says, oh, it was another great day for the Bailey boys. Trying to keep that little savings and loan going. And I love that movie because I know that feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm scared. I didn't feel any joy that moment. And I was bothered by that because I thought, you know, I'm God's child. Why am I not experiencing joy? Why can't I look at this in the, in the right frame? Well, I've been thinking on that in the past few weeks. And what I'd like to do is lay out some practical suggestions for me and for you so that we can see this joy as we should. Now, first of all, certainly the most important are the ones we already know about. Prayer, studying God's word, confession of sins, repentance. Without those, nothing happens. Unless we come to God, spend time <clears throat> reading what he's told us to be true, confessing sins that we know we've done, accepting his forgiveness, we won't see any of that joy. But I guess what's, what I'm often thinking about is, you know, a lot of my day I can't be doing that, at least directly. I, I can't have this book open in front of me during a large portion of my day. We've got these things to do, jobs to do, cars to drive, gardens to hoe, <clears throat> children to take care of, uh, all these things, and we can't we can't be sitting in a chair reading scripture. What do we do with our minds during those times? That's what I'd like to get at. But also, let's not confuse personality with joy. Because I know what a lot of you are thinking. Oh, yeah, there's Eeyore up there telling me about joy, those of you who know me. Uh, you know, I'm a structured individual. That's why I was attracted to engineering. Uh, you can ask uh, my brothers on the session if you ever want a somewhat pessimistic view of what's going on, just come to Ken Demarest, and he, that's, that's his gut reaction. So I understand that about my personality. But by the same token, I have known many people who are chipper, seem to have joy, at least by the earthly definition of joy. They don't know Christ. And so therefore, do not confuse your personality with what's going on here. Now, that being said, we should all we are certainly directed to, sh to show the joy of the Father through our lives. And so each one of us should be working on what we do through the grid of the personality that we have. But don't think that just, just because you think, well, I'm a basically happy person. I don't need to listen to this. Well, no, don't confuse personality with the joy of the Lord. I've got five suggestions here that I think could be helpful. First of all, who do you think you are? Just who do you think you are? Now, I'm talking like, like my mother right now. I'm thinking of being in trouble many times. <clears throat> and generally, when she said that to me, it's because I wasn't thinking about anybody else. You know, there were certain things that I wanted, and I was just acting like a jerk. And that's when she would corner me and say, who do you think you are? Well, the point was, who do I think I am? During the day, who do you think you are? Do you concentrate 
actively on the fact that you are God's child. You are, in fact, a child of the king. Do you actually tell that to yourself throughout your day? And I've come to the conclusion I really hadn't been. You know, you go out, you know, you kind of, kind of go in automatic pilot throughout your day, and the day sort of broadcasts to, it, to you what you're going to do. You get up at a certain time, you eat breakfast, you do this, you do that. But have I trained myself moment by moment to convince myself I am, in fact, in God's world, I am a child of the king. I know if I had been born in a humanly royal family, I would act differently. I would look at my robes. I would look at the crown on my father's head kind of thing. I would look at the castle. I know I would act differently. And so I have to ask the question, why don't I act differently? Well, because part of it is, I think, I tend not to concentrate on that fact. So I think it's, it's valuable to ask, who do we think we are? I once had my car serviced, or there was once a, sh a shop in town where I took my car, and I, I liked going to this place because I felt like I was always dealt with very nicely. I trusted these people, and I, I just liked the way they spent time talking with me and answering my questions. And I, I mentioned that to the guy behind the counter once. I said, I, I like coming back here because I, I'm, I just like the way I'm treated. And the man's answer fasc fascinated me. He would not accept my praise. He kept pointing to a picture on the wall of the owner of that shop, and he said, he is the reason we do this. And I thought, isn't this interesting? That's how I'm supposed to act. That's how I'm supposed to think of my Heavenly Father. When people praise me, do I immediately say, I do this because of my Heavenly Father? That was very convicting, but very helpful. If he could do that for his earthly boss, what a joy it should be do, to do for our, heavenly, for our heavenly boss. Another, another practical thing. Actually, I've got one other point here. I don't know who this was, and I, th I think it was a, somebody in another country who had been saved through the act of a missionary, but when he would refer to himself, he would always refer to God as his owner. He was very deliberate in that. Whenever he referred to, him, referred to God, he always referred to God as his owner. And I think this man had just realized that that was an excellent way to keep reminding himself of what's really true. This guy wasn't just some free agent. This guy was a child of the king. God owned him. I think that's an excellent thing for us to concentrate on. Okay, number two. Remind yourself that joy is found in God, not in what he gives us. Actively remind yourself of that. Because once again, in our daily walk, you know, we tend to sort of live out in automatic pilot and we pursue what we think are joys, but we forget that real joy is found in God himself and being in him. Now, there are certainly two very good reminders of this. The first is the first commandment. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, and soul. You know, we tend to sort of just rub past that very quickly. Oh, yeah, 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 I, I get that. We're supposed to honor God. But think about the words there. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul. Make this the great passion of your life to pursue this God, to know him, <clears throat> to revel in his greatness. Actively think about that. That's what this commandment is all about. 
And I'll admit, a lot of times I just haven't actively thought that way. Another good reminder of this is the first question of the Westminster Catechism. I think there's about 70 or 80 questions in the Catechism, but a lot of us know at least the first one. First question is, what is the chief end of man? The answer is, close your eyes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, we're kind of attracted to the first part because the first part is a a to-do. Oh, I I get it. I go out and do things. Glorify my God through what I do. But the enjoyment is a quieter, ah, enjoy being his child. Enjoy how great he is. Several years ago, I was at a prayer meeting here, and as we were um, opening a prayer, I don't want to embarrass him, but it's been very meaningful in my life. Norm Holmscog opened in prayer in my little group, and he said something to the effect of, God, we're here, and we've, we've been enjoying the, the beautiful day that you made today. I can't remember what the day was like, but it was evidently a, a beautiful day. And he said, we see your handiwork in nature, and we love you for that. And it was that last phrase that hooked me. And I thought, how often do I connect that? You know, I open the windows and I see this great day and I say, oh, it's a great day. And I might even say thank you to God for making a great day. But how often do I connect the dot and say, wow, you must be great. Look at what you're doing. If you made that, can you imagine what heaven's going to be like? And I thought that was just an excellent, once again, train your mind to keep thinking these things through. At least on that day, Norm had Third thing, remind yourself that the situations of your life are under God's control and are directed towards the goal of making you more like God himself. You know, things go wrong in a day. A lot of things irritate you. And I must admit, my normal reaction to irritations is to get irritated. Funny about that. And why am I irritated? Because things didn't go according to plan. I don't like the way this happened. But we have promises in Scripture that say nothing touches us apart from God's will. In Romans 8, 28 and 29, it says, And we know that in in him all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All things, especially irritations. For those God... For knew he also predestined, why? To be conformed to the likeness of a son, that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. <clears throat> God is engineering my day to sanctify me, to make me like him. Trouble is, I'm often not thinking that way. I'm just saying, I don't like this. I hit my finger, I you know, bumped my car, somebody yelled at me. <clears throat> I don't like that. And what I need to do is give pause and say, hold it. God is in charge. Yes, this is a difficult circumstance here, but hold it. It's God, the sovereign one, who placed this here. What does he want me to see here? Now, we have to train ourselves to to do these things. Paul talks about training himself as an athlete for the work of Christ. Your sinful nature won't be thinking this, but our new nature does. We need to train ourselves to think of these things. James also, we read this in James 1, 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. 
A fourth thing, remind yourself that what you see now is not heaven. And it won't be heaven no matter how hard you try to make it so. Once again, I think we all fall into a pattern of trying to make things here as nice as we can. We want other people around us to be nice. Why? So that they'll glorify their Heavenly Father? No, we want them to be nice so that our lives will be nicer. My life will be a lot nicer, you know, if all of you <clears throat> were doing the right thing. And so I think we tend to sort of turn things upside down and try to pat our nest rather than thinking <clears throat> that, yes, we are in a cursed world. That's why Christ died. Heaven is what's coming. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as, I was also, even as also I was fully known. Uh, a quote from a, a, a movie about C.S. Lewis that I love called Shadowlands. Actually, I think there were two. But in one of them, a phrase that goes all throughout the movie, all this is just shadows. Real life hasn't begun yet. It's a great phrase. All this, all this is just shadows. Real life hasn't begun yet. Remind yourself of that. Heaven is coming. We're on a ride that lasts a long time. Finally, fifth point, guard your thought life. Let's take a look at Philippians 4.8. Bill has read this to us in the past few weeks. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Train yourself to do this. Now, this isn't a works thing. You're not saving yourself while doing this. This is part of experiencing God's joy. Train your mind to do what your sinful nature says is foolish. I want to end with a little story that I think illustrates this. And also while we're doing that, I'd like us to turn to Matthew 25, 21, which is the end of another parable that we talked about, the parable of the talents. I saw a family several years ago, um, young parents, younger than me, with little kids, and they were in a minivan, and I remember the father opened the minivan door, and there standing in front of him was his little daughter. I'm going to guess she was somewhere in the range of three or four. And she had her arms outstretched, and she was beaming, just beaming, because obviously the, the game that they played was daddy would catch her as she jumped out of the van. I loved her face. Her face said, my daddy is everything. My life is my daddy. Nothing is better than being in my daddy's presence. And I thought, there's a lesson. Now, it was a number of years ago. Maybe she's a teenager and has a somewhat different view of daddy. That often happens. But <clears throat> for that moment, she understood that life was good with her daddy. And that's what we're called to. And in Matthew 25, 21, this is what the... Master tells the servants. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's what God is calling us to do, to share in his happiness. 
Happiness is not something to be, something to be pursued internal. It's not to be something even pursued externally in things. Happiness is a relationship with this great God. He is great. He is awesome. He loves you. He's bought you at great price to himself. And there's great joy in that. And I hope that these five things that I've been processing are helpful to you because I want us all to experience this joy. Let's pray. Father, we praise you because you are great. Father, when we read your word, we know that you are great. You have done great things. But, oh, Father, we stumble. We wish that we could see you. We certainly see evidence of your greatness, but we wish we could see you, and we know that we will. Father, help us to guard our thoughts, to train our minds to always be directed to your truth, to be convinced that our true joy is found only in pursuing you because you yourself are joy. And being in your kingdom is wonderful. Fathers, we leave here today into life away from the church. Father, help us to be disciplined. Help us to see you in every corner. We ask this in your name. Amen.